Before I went on holiday, we had started into a Bible overview series, and I plan to come back to that series in two weeks' time. But rather than start back into it today uh, and then take a break uh, again next week, I I want to preach today on a passage uh, that I read in my own Bible reading during the week. And I was struck at how helpful a description that it is of what God's goal is every time we meet together for worship. It's good every so often to reassess why we do what we do. Uh, Lest we end up doing things simply for the sake of doing them and we forget what the purpose is meant to be. There are certain times when it can be particularly helpful to do that, such as at the beginning of a new year. Uh, And while we're not at the beginning of a a new calendar year today, we're rapidly approaching the beginning of a new school year and a new season of church life. As we prepare for the Go Team coming, as we resume various ministries that have taken a break over the summer. We've also agreed as a session to restart a regular weekly prayer time before the morning service. That's something we've done here in the past. And as a session we've been praying and discussing for some time now as to the best slot in the week to hold a prayer time. And we've concluded that before the service on a Sunday morning, we'll give the best chance for as many as possible to attend. Praying together before the service is also a great thing to do because it gives us an opportunity to come together and seek God's blessing on what we're about to do. And it should also help us prepare our hearts to come together to worship God. Now this morning's sermon isn't about prayer, uh, though I have preached in the past about the, the, the priority and power of praying together. But this sermon is about what we do when we come together to worship. And particularly what God wants to do in us as we sit under his word being preached. And to be reminded of what God's goal is for us as we gather together is actually one of the most helpful things we can do as we think about praying together. Because if if we know what God wants for us as we gather together, then we can pray that that is what we'll experience. It's not that we we can't pray for other things uh, at a prayer time before a worship service But surely what is about to happen should be our focus, the the centre point of the week. So I trust this will be a timely sermon as we prepare to to restart a pre-service prayer time. But even if that wasn't happening, it's still absolutely vital that we know what the goal is as we gather together for worship. And as we sit under the preaching of the word. And that's what we're going to look at under two main headings this morning. We're going to start with the preacher's role and then we're going to think about Jesus' goal. So the preacher's role and Jesus' goal. And obviously these these things are very, very closely linked. Uh, They're divided into different points just just for the sake of looking at them. Uh, But but, but they're they're effectively the the same thing. Uh, And then uh, having looked at Jesus' 
the, the preacher's role and Jesus' goal. We're going to think uh, very briefly about what the result of it all should be. Uh, but two main headings this morning. Uh, and firstly, the preacher's role. Now, perhaps it sounds a bit self-serving to give an entire a point uh, to the preacher's role. But if you're to pray for the preacher, whoever that is on any given Lord's Day, you need to know what he's meant to be doing. And in this passage, God the Father does two things which every preacher should do when they enter the pulpit. God the Father models for us in verse 5 what a preacher should do. When the disciples hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you see what God the Father does there? Yeah. First of all, he declares who Jesus is uh, and then he tells the disciples to listen to him. And that is uh, my privilege and responsibility every Lord's Day. If I were to ask you what the Bible was about, what would you say? Uh, well, there are a number of ways you could answer it. But hopefully your answer would be something to do with God. The Bible is about God and the glory of God. And here's another question. Where do we see the glory of God most clearly? Well, do we see it most clearly in Jesus Christ? Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the theme of the scriptures. He says in John 5, 39, the scriptures bear witness about me. In the last chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus uh, says that his disciples are, are fools for, for not knowing that the scriptures spoke about him. And, and that was speaking about the Old Testament. And if the Old Testament scriptures are, are about Jesus, I think we can safely say the same about the New Testament. Older theologians used to talk about the, the scope of scripture. Uh, that's a word. Uh, it occurs, uh, for example, in our confession of faith and the larger catechism. And by the scope of Scripture, they just meant, what is Scripture all about? And what did they see the scope of Scripture as? They saw it as about the glory of God, and particularly in the redeeming work of the Son of God. Uh, the, the scope of Scripture, the, the focus of Scripture, it's the glory of God in the redeeming work of the Son of God. Today we might talk about being Christ-centred, but it's the same thing. Jesus specifically says of the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me. So churches which have their, their primary focus on the Holy Spirit actually get things a bit out of kilter. Because even though the Spirit and the Son are, are, are equal in power and glory, the Spirit loves to glorify the Son. Like those lights uh, that, are, that are placed on the ground around historic buildings uh, that are there to shine light on the building itself. 
so that those walking past can see the, those buildings in their glory. That's what the Spirit loves to do to Jesus. And so if the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is the theme of the Bible, uh, then it should also be the theme of sermons from the Bible. And here in this passage, God the Father declares who Jesus is. This is my beloved Son. He goes on, in whom I am well pleased. And if God the Father delights in the Son, should we not? And don't miss this note of delight. Yes, the Father also says, listen to him. But the order is important. Firstly, here is who Jesus is. And then in light of that truth, listen to him. Back in May, in one of our final sermons on 2 Samuel, I quoted from a lady who became a Christian, uh, who before she was converted would have called herself gay. And she said she knew the Bible was clear that what she felt, uh, that what felt natural to her was now off limits. But she struggled with the why question. But how did she overcome that? Well, she said in the end it came down to trust. She knew Jesus was worthy of her trust because he had demonstrated that at the cross. And then she said the obedience of faith only works when it's rooted in a person, not a rule. And I think she's right. And we see more evidence for that in the passage in front of us. Before God tells us to listen to Jesus, he tells us who Jesus is. He is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. And so yes, absolutely, my responsibility is to tell you to listen to Jesus. But it's also my responsibility and privilege to tell you who this Jesus is. And I think at times, preachers and people alike can be too impatient to get to the practical, to get to the application, to get to what Jesus wants us to do. And that's all important, but we need to start with who Jesus is. And that's true whether someone is a non-Christian, it's true whether someone is a new Christian, it's true whether someone has been a Christian for many years. Because seeing Jesus is actually first and foremost what God uses to change us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Seeing glory changes us. We become like what we worship. That, that's true. That's true for, for unbelievers as well. They become like what they worship. But for Christians, we become like what we worship. Have you ever noticed that, that Paul's letters like Romans and Ephesians, they start off with who we are in Christ and they only get the application later on. The book of Ephesians is a, a particularly good example. It starts with three chapters where the only command uh, is to remember who you once were and who you now are that you're a Christian. And then the second half of the book goes on to application. 
Someone has rightly said, we are what we love before we are what we do. It's right and necessary that a minister applies God's word, but it should flow from who Jesus is. The name William McEwen is not that well known today. He was a Scottish seceder minister. He, he died in 1762. He was aged just 28. He'd been a minister for seven years. He'd been married for 10 days. Four years before he died, he preached at an ordination in Aberdeen. And as part of that sermon, he compared the evangelical preacher of Christ to the legal disclaimer. In other words, to the, the legalistic preacher. And I've put two sentences from what he said in that sermon on your handout because I think they're so helpful. He says that the legalistic preacher is always inculcating, always hammering home the duties of Christianity, but seldom the privileges. In other words, people come to church and they're always being told what they need to do but they're rarely reminded of who they are in Christ. McEwen goes on to say, instead of making privilege the foundation of duty, the legalist makes duty the foundation of privilege. What, what does it mean to do it the right way around? What does it mean to make privilege the foundation of duty? Well, it's simply what Paul does in the likes of Ephesians and Romans. It's to start with who you are in Christ. It's to start, start with what God in Christ has done for you. And then, it, it, it's not to stop there, but it's to say in light of all that, here is how you're to go and live. Whereas the legalistic preacher makes duty the foundation of privilege. In other words, he, he starts with what you need to do. And the implication is, well, if you go out and do that, if you perform well enough, well, maybe God will love you. It's not God has shown in Christ just how much he loves you. Now, in light of that, go out and serve him. But it's more go out and serve him and maybe, uh, maybe he'll be pleased with you. Now, that probably won't be, be explicitly said, uh, but it's there. The difference would always be obvious at first sight because a lot of the time that the evangelical preacher and the legalistic preacher, they'll be preaching many of the same duties. Not all the time because, as we'll see a bit later on, the legalistic preacher will add, add to what scripture requires. But, but maybe they'll, they'll both be preaching and saying saying you should, you should read your Bible, uh, and that, that is a, a duty, but, but, but what, is that, what is the foundation of that duty? It is someone preaching duty as a foundation of privilege, or privilege as a foundation of duty. In other words, is their message, do this and God will love you? Or is that message, God has shown in Christ just how much he loves you, now go out and live like this. And so if Christ is the scope of scripture, if duty must be rooted in what Jesus has done for us, then preaching needs to major on exalting the Lord Jesus. I pray that the preaching you hear would do that. Many of you will, hear, will have heard of Matthew Henry. 
probably the most famous Bible commentator ever. His Bible commentary is surely one of the greatest books ever written. Someone who's less well known is his father, Philip. Uh, And Philip Henry wrote a book entitled Christ is All. Uh, Here are some of the chapter titles to give you a flavour. He's got a chapter, Christ is our hope. Another chapter, Christ is our refuge. Another one, Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our sun, our shield, our strength. Let me ask you this morning, is Jesus your hope? Is he your refuge? Is he your righteousness, your sun, your shield, your strength? If not, then nothing I say will be of any lasting advantage to you. Jesus is at the centre of the Bible and he must be at the centre of our lives. And if you're struggling in your faith at the moment, if you feel cold and far from God, one thing that may help is reading a book specifically about the Lord Jesus uh, to, to warm up your heart again. I've listed a few examples on the handout, all of which have short chapters, which is probably uh, what someone in that situation needs when you're feeling cold. So God the Father here in verse 5, he he starts by declaring who Jesus is. And then in light of that, he says, listen to him. And again, the preacher is to do the same. Of course, to say, listen to Jesus, it is no different from saying, listen to God. Jesus is the word of God in the flesh. If someone rejects the Jesus of the Bible, then they're rejecting God. And the preacher is to declare, listen to him, not listen to me. The authority of the preacher is only a delegated authority as a herald of Jesus Christ. And so the preacher cannot make up his own message, nor can he go beyond what Jesus says. I read something this week by an American minister, which I thought was helpful. He said, the pastor's job isn't to micromanage your life. In other words, it's not to go through absolutely every part of life and say, this is the Christian way to do X. As if there only was one Christian way. He goes on, while this model is attractive, it lacks a nuance of biblical wisdom literature. And when he says it's attractive, I think he means it's attractive not just to certain types of minister, but also to certain types of people who, who don't really have to, want to have to make decisions for themselves, but would rather just be told what to do. And the guy I was reading says that it results in a church where everyone is is expected to do X. Where X is presented as God's law. Even if it's just that particular church's idea of obedience. And the result is a culture where people think that real faithfulness looks like X. Rather than people being equipped to use biblical wisdom to make their own decisions And to recognise that other godly believers might come to different conclusions. Sometimes it is hard for us to grasp that other godly believers can come to different conclusions than us. Uh, But but we, we do need to be able to do that. 
Our Confession of Faith has a great chapter on Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And yes, the idea of Christian liberty can be used as, as an excuse for sin. But if we have no concept that godly Christians can come to different decisions than us, then something has gone wrong. The preacher is to say, listen to him. Not listen to what I think is good advice, uh, packaged up as if it's the only option. So firstly, this morning, the preacher's role. Secondly, we have Jesus' goal. Secondly, more briefly, Jesus' goal. What does Jesus do for his fearful disciples in this passage? We find the answer in verse 7. He comes to them, he touches them, and he tells them not to be afraid. Is this Jesus' only goal in preaching? Well, no, I don't think we can go that far, but surely it's a big one. It's said that the most frequent command in Scripture is do not be afraid. That tells us that God's people are often fearful. Fearful because they're conscious of their own sin. Fearful because they're worried about the future. Fearful because of the state of the world around them. Think how many times Jesus comes to his disciples and says, Take heart. Take heart. And do you think that the Jesus who who repeatedly uh, told his disciples to take heart, who repeatedly told his disciples not to be afraid, do do you think that, that now Jesus is in heaven, that what he wants for us is radically different? Of course not. Uh, that's, that's the whole point of one, one of the most beautiful Puritan uh, works ever written. Thomas Goodwin wrote a book entitled The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. Uh, uh, and uh, what he's arguing in that book is that Jesus' heart for sinners, now that Jesus is in heaven, is no different from what it was when he was on earth. Now that might sound obvious. You know, of course Jesus doesn't, doesn't change. But... But some people think that a good sermon is one where they get absolutely roasted. I had someone tell me a couple of years ago that they liked going to hear a certain preacher because it would be so convicting that they would come out wondering whether they were a Christian. And they thought that was a good thing. Every week they would go to church thinking they were a Christian and every week they would come out wondering if they really were a Christian. And they thought, well, that's great preaching. Now absolutely one of the goals of preaching is that the Holy Spirit would use it to show unbelievers who think they're Christians that they're actually not. But is the Jesus we see in the Gospels someone who really wants to shake his disciples' confidence that they're really his people? Or is he someone who wants to reassure those who are struggling and doubting? The Jesus in heaven today is no different from the Jesus who was on earth. His heart towards his people in heaven is no different from what it was on earth. He has the same human flesh today, now glorified. He remembers that we are dust. I'm conscious that that this might sound, you know, maybe a bit woolly, but but I've quoted... uh, McEwen, a great voice from the past, who who says that it it is the legalistic preacher who is big on duty and small on privilege 
I've quoted Goodwin. Here's two more Puritans. Richard Sibbs, we are only poor for this reason, that we do not know our riches in Christ. What's our greatest problem as Christians? Well, how would we answer that? We might say lack of effort. What, what's, what's my biggest problem as a Christian? It's lack of effort. Sib says, no, it's that we don't know our riches in Christ. Then the final Puritan quote is from John Owen. He says, on acquaintedness with our mercies, our privileges, is our sin as well as our trouble. What brings us trouble as Christians? Owen says, it's on acquaintedness with our privileges. Do we need rebuked and challenged by the preaching of God's word? Absolutely. And that will be one of the effects of what we've already looked at under point one, of seeing Jesus as who he really is. Because what is it in our passage that leads to the disciples being terrified and falling on their faces? Well, it's a revelation of God's glory. It's hearing the voice from heaven. In fact, someone has said that true preaching is to speak in such a way that if God were to speak from heaven, he wouldn't have anything more to add. And whether that's a helpful description or not, God is speaking in the preaching of the word in a way that we can be even more sure of than if we heard a voice from heaven. Is that not what Peter says when he thinks back to this event later on? Uh, Second Peter, looking back to the transfiguration, Peter says that what we have now in the Bible is actually more sure. How can that be? Well, because if we heard a voice from heaven today, we couldn't be sure whether it was really God or not. But in the Bible, Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. And on that mountain, seeing Jesus in his glory and hearing that voice from heaven leads to those three disciples being terrified. Because in light of the the shining brilliance of Jesus' glory, we see our sin all the more clearly. Think of Peter on another occasion as he witnesses Jesus' power. He says, depart from me for I I am a sinful man, O Lord. As Jesus speaks by his word and spirit, his goal, one of his goals is to show us our sin. And that will happen when we see him in his glory, when we realise how far short we fall. He wants to show us our sin. It is good and kind that he does. But he doesn't want to, to show us our sin and leave us there. And surely by the conclusion of a sermon and in the benediction... The message of the Lord Jesus to his people is the same as it is here. Rise and have no fear. Rise and have no fear. True preaching must preach the law, but it also must go on to preach the gospel. In Pilgrim's Progress, one of the the characters is a man called Faithful. And Faithful meets a man who who knocks him down and, and then hits him again. Uh, and faithful when he comes round he, he cries out to the man for mercy and the man says I know not to show mercy I know not how to show mercy and he knocks him down again who's the man 
Who's the man who's always knocking down? Who, who knows not how to show mercy? Well, he's Moses representing the law. The law shows us our sin. It shows us our saviour. It shows us our duty. But it can't save us. It can't show mercy. Because that's not what it was designed for. The reason that, that Moses appears on the Mount of Transfiguration is to show that he pointed to Jesus. Moses can convict of sin. The law can convict of sin. But only Jesus can say, rise and have no fear. And that is surely one of Jesus' biggest goals for his people as his word is preached. Psalm 85 at verse 8. We'll sing it in a few moments. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people. So the preacher's role, Jesus' goal. Just very briefly as we close, let's think about the result. Verse 8. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Would not be a great thing to be able to say of us during the act of preaching that we see no one but Jesus only. That the preacher disappears behind the cross. That we stop thinking about how much the sermon applies to someone else. That all these things disappear from our minds and we see Jesus only. Now, of course, we can't stay on the mountaintop forever. And there's a sense in which uh, this, uh, but there is a sense in which seeing no one but Jesus only should continue as we come down from the mountain. Not that we cut off ourselves from other people, uh, not at all. Even on the mountain, there were always three of the disciples with Jesus. It wasn't a private encounter uh, with Jesus and just one of them. So we don't cut ourselves off from other people, but but we should look at other people through Jesus' lenses. We should look at our fellow Christians as those in whom Jesus lives by his Spirit. As our brothers and sisters in Christ. As the younger of the two Margaret said about the older, as they were tied to those stakes in the Solway Firth. I see Christ wrestling there. We should look for Christ in one another. And we should look at all believers as those whom the Lord Jesus does not want to perish. And if we share his concern for them, if we share his desire that they wouldn't perish, we can do something that these three disciples weren't allowed to do. And that's tell them what we've seen. Verse 9, they couldn't tell what they had seen, what they had experienced. Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. But we can tell what we've experienced. The Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And if if we don't tell people the good news, we're living as if he hasn't. The only reason not to tell people the good news is if you're living between the transfiguration and Jesus not being raised from the dead. There were things, uh, they could still tell some things, but they couldn't tell the whole thing. But we can, we can. And so, as we come down from the mountain each Lord's Day, may the vision of the Lord Jesus that we have seen in his word, may it shape how we see others both believers and unbelievers. And may we never come away unchanged from an encounter with the risen Lord. Amen. Well, let's praise him with...
those words I quoted a few moments ago about, about how God will speak peace to his people. Psalm 85c. Psalm 85c. Page 192. Page 192. Psalm 85c. And particularly verse 3. Listening what the Lord will say. Peace to all that own his will. To his saints that love his way. Peace and turn no more to ill. Uh, that, is, that is what we should be hearing as we come under the word preached. As Jesus, who is the word of God, speaks to us. Verse, verse 5 here speaks, speaks so clearly of the cross where mercy and justice meet. Uh, how could God be merciful and still be just? We find the answer at the cross. So Psalm 85, C, uh, tune 233, will stand to sing praise. <laughs> 